You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Joshua, chapter 11, 1 to 15. When Jabin, Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of, he, uh, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashbat, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Shinaroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphtoth, Naphtoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hevites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with many, many, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom, to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon, and Mesropoth, Maine, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with, old, with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it devoting them to destruction, and there was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood alone mounds, st- stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they did not leave anyone who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Latisse. Well, when I was in my 20s, I worked at a bookshop called Napoleon's. It was a military bookshop. It was a bit of an unusual kind of place, an interesting place, really, with a lot of interesting people. There's one guy that my boss talked about who uh, believed that he was the reincarnation of Erwin Rommel, uh, an unusual b- belief to have. There's lots of interesting books as well. Probably the most uh, fascinating one for me was called They Had No Choice, the story of carrier pigeons at war. Uh, <laughs> a fairly obscure title. But this place was actually reasonably popular because a lot of people are fascinated by military history. They love to read about the strategy and the tactics and the characters. 
the stories of courage and cowardice of, of triumph and disaster. And really, as we get to this part of Joshua, we're reading war history, right, to chapter 11 and 12, and we're reading today about how Israel subdued their enemies and laid claim to the land that God had promised them. Their strategy was a, a bold one and a very successful one, cutting across the centre of the land. They go from Jericho to Ai to Gibeon, and then they dive down to the south in a kind of a blitzkrieg throughout the southern region of the land, then back up to the, to the northern part of the country. And for another seven years or so, they take, they take their time to work through the northern, uh, uh, northern parts of the land. And by the end of chapter 12, we read what they've achieved. You actually can see it on the map in, on the notes. It's at a vast area that they have now conquered and 31 kings have been defeated. And that's against all the odds. You see, these countries have fought tooth and nail against them. Perhaps the most crucial battle comes at the start of chapter 11 as Jabin, the king of Hazor, rallies the armies of northern Canaan to fight God's people. The language is meant to sort of intimidate us. Verse 4, they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. As Robert Hubbard makes the point, it's emphasising the size of this army. There's, there's Canaanites, there's Amorites, there's Hittites, there's Perizzites, there's Jebusites, thousands massing together. As Habib puts it, everyone has come from everywhere and they come with uh, the, the most leading edge technology of, for war at that time, very many horses and chariots. Imagine today if we faced an army that had all of these enormous tanks or something, that's what this is like. But God's people don't need to fear. See, long before this, even before they'd entered the land, God had said to them in Deuteronomy 20, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. And so it proves here, God reassures them. In verse 7, Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, and they they win this great battle. And note how the victory is described. We see two things. We see, first of all, we see God's strength. The Lord gave their enemies into the hand of Israel. And this phrase is repeated throughout these chapters. The Lord gave this city, gave that city into the hand of Israel. God is doing it. Yahweh is a warrior fighting for his people. Chapter 10, verse 42, Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And that's really the essential difference, the great advantage that God's people have. This is the ultimate big brother in the playground. God himself is fighting for his people. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So we see God's strength, but we also see that the people are obedient. See, God's uh, blessing for them is tied to, the, to their obedience. That's what we see here in Hazel, verse 9. Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. And this theme is repeated throughout these chapters as well. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And so the land is captured through this combination of God's power and human faith, his promises and their obedience, until we see at the end of chapter 11 
that the land is finally at rest. There's still more things for them to do. Uh, they, uh, they, the land has been subdued, but it's not yet fully occupied, and we'll see more of that next week. But they've broken the back of this task. Armies have been defeated. Cities have been claimed. Enemies have been conquered. This is then a very encouraging part of Scripture. I mean, so often God's people are unfaithful and unsteady. We watch them being called to do certain things and they fail to do them. But here they're bold and they're faithful and so they receive God's promises. And yet, and yet it might not be that we feel at rest as we read these passages. As I read these chapters, I think it brings up some complex sort of emotions. That's because the chapters depict these glorious uh, triumphs but also incredible violence in the claiming of them. I mean, when I read these passages, I imagine one of those scenes at the end of a great battle in a war. The field is broken open. There's dead men everywhere, chariots and horses strewn across the landscape, and the survivors, the victors, are bruised and bloodied. That's the picture that we have here. I mean, there is rest, but only for Israel. Israel's triumph comes with the destruction, the, the decimation, the obliteration of their enemies. God's grace to them means judgment for others. Israel's obedience is carried out by killing these other nations. And this is unsettling for us to read, I think. I mean, the instructions that God gave his people before they even entered the land are quite startling. He tells them very clearly what they're called to do. Numbers 33, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Deuteronomy 20, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. So that's what they've done. We saw this back in chapter 6 at Jericho. They devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. That's what they did at Ai. They pursued the people of the city until all of them to the very last had fallen to the sword. And that's what we see them do repeatedly here. At Makeda, Joshua devoted to destruction every person in it. At Libna, he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining. At Lachish, at Giza, Eglon, Hebron, Debir, Hazor, again and again we see this and it's all at the command of God. Joshua did just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And it's uncomfortable for us to read, Right? And for some people, it causes a lot of controversy and starts to, to bring questions about Christianity and about the character of God himself. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, wrote this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, he says, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. 
and of Joshua specifically, he says that this is a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. It's not leaving much out, is it? But it's not just angry atheists like Dawkins who might have a problem with this. It's often Christians. Could be you. I know I've had to wrestle with these passages. Christians often talk about apologetics, where we defend the faith with some of the, the most difficult questions that there might be. And I've, no, apologetics is always tricky, but I can kind of give you some sort of answer about why there's suffering, why I think predestination is a beautiful doctrine. I can even talk about why I think hell is important. But I find something like this passage, the violence that we see in these stories, one of the hardest things for me to discuss or to understand. I mean, we think of God as merciful and kind, a loving and forgiving being, don't we? We get that in the Old Testament, Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see it in Jesus, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. And the great promise of the Messiah that Jesus represents was that he would bring peace. Isaiah 2, the nations will beat their swords into plowshares. They will no longer learn war. So what are we to do with these passages? How should we think about them? Some people try to just kind of deny the whole thing. They say basically it just didn't happen. All of the stories that we're reading here are metaphorical. There weren't actually these Canaanites, but what it's a metaphor for how we should, as Christians, as God's people, treat sin. We should drive it out of our lives, destroy it. But there's just too much archaeological evidence to make that credible. Others try to explain it by the concept of accommodation or what we call progressive revelation. The idea is that uh, things were different in the ancient world. It was a harsher, more savage time, and so God... Uh, allowed, accommodated his people. They were living in this cruel time and so they were allowed to be more violent than we would be. And over time, God's standards kind of change. Now, I hope you can see some of the problems with a view like this. First of all, it's incredibly arrogant, I think, to assume that we are more evolved, that we are a more moral or more enlightened people than those in the past. I mean, that has to be up for debate. We've just come off the most violent and deadly century of all human history. But secondly, it assumes that God's standards have changed, that he's kind of lifted the bar, that his rules have changed. But Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the law is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Like they're reliable. God's standards don't change because ultimately he doesn't change. See, if his standards were changing, then he would be changing. And we know that God is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13. So I don't think that's a viable option for us either. And so another option is just for us to just kind of ignore it, to leave these passages of the Scripture alone and to move over them, to pretend they're not here. But I don't think that's how faith works. See, we don't have to be afraid of asking big questions here. It's patronising to imagine that the great God, the Lion of Judah, can't handle a few questions. We need to somehow apologise for him or cover up. 
No, no, these things are, are written for our benefit, 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction. God, God wants to equip us with every part of His Word, and so He wants to equip us with this part of His Word as well. He, he wants to teach us. And that's actually what I've been finding. As I say, I find this concept of the violence in the Old Testament unsettling, but as I've been thinking about it and studying it much more over the last couple of months, I, I feel like I'm starting to understand it better, why it's there, why it's important, and what God is trying to say to us through it. And so I want to share some of that with you today to, to offer you some thoughts about how we make sense of this. Now, I know that this is a big topic, and so if you want to do some more research, there's actually a couple of links at the bottom of your notes today. Uh, in fact, one from a guy called Andy Judd, who goes to City on a Hill, Melbourne, and is a, a lecturer in Old Testament studies at Ridley Theological College. It's an excellent essay, so you might want to check that out afterwards. But, but how do we make sense of this? Well, here's the first thing that we need to understand, that the people destroyed were those who opposed God and his people, that these were enemies of Israel who opposed God's people, God himself, and hated his people. You might remember the last week I spoke about this great narrative that runs through human history, the conflict between good and evil, between God and the devil. After humanity fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, God says to the serpent, to the devil in Genesis 3, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's, there's this conflict being set up and that sets the pattern for history. Humanity has sinned, but God will send a Messiah, a Saviour into the world who will come and rescue his people. But the devil knows this and will try to do everything he can to prevent that from happening, to prevent the Messiah coming into the world, to stop and boy, uh, sabotage his mission. And really what he does to do that is he attacks God's people. And the ways that he does that can be described as either extermination or infiltration. Now, last week we saw how he seeks to infiltrate God's people, to corrupt from within and to, to, to sully them, to change them so that they compromise. This week we see open attempts to exterminate his people through violence and war. See, at various points in this, these chapters, we see the nations mass against Israel. They gather in all of their forces in chapter 11, just as they did in chapter 9. They gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And so God's people had to fight. They're being attacked. It's right for them to respond to that. These people are seeking to exterminate them. So that's the first thing we need to understand. And then really their, their desire, their, their willingness to fight God and his people points to their, to their sin. And that's the second thing we have to really grasp, that their destruction was God's judgment on their sin, not just in fighting them, but a lifetime, a culture of sin. Uh, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the people of the land were, were grotesque in their sin. Deuteronomy 12, every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. That last bit is a reference to how they would sacrifice their children in their worship services. 
I mean, we gather, when we come together, we, we read the Bible, we pray, we sing a few songs. When they had a worship service, they were sacrificing children. That's what was happening. And this, was, this shaped their whole culture. This was a harsh and violent, cruel, savage culture. And surely, surely God had to judge that. I mean, we would demand that God would do something about that, wouldn't we? Just imagine you're one of the uh, US Marines who, who liberates Germany in 1945 and you come to Auschwitz and you realise the horrors that have happened there of the Holocaust. Like you would demand justice. There has to be some response to that. Or imagine we saw 20,000 babies Slaughtered. There's an archaeological site that suggests there were 20,000 babies in one place slaughtered by the Canaanites. Surely God has to do something about that. You see, sin demands a response. Evil demands justice. And we experience this at our own level, don't we? If your purse was stolen, you would want the thief caught. If your child was kidnapped, you'd want to see the criminal prosecuted. I mean, just this week I had a couple of friends talk about how people close to them betrayed them and really hurt them. And as they were telling me their stories, the, this yearning for justice was rising up within me. It's just so unfair how they've been treated. And I don't think that's a desire for vengeance. It's a desire for justice. When bad ha things happen, when evil rises up, we pray, we hope that God will do something about it. Sin demands a response. And so it does here. The evil of the people of that land demanded a response. And so God does respond in justice. And actually, I think his justice is an exhibition of his love and his character. That's what the theologian Miroslav Volf says. God is love, he writes, and God loves every person and every creature, and that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Uh, Volf is a theologian who was born in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, he lived through the civil war that split that country in the 1990s, witnessing many uh, horrific things. And and during this time, he talks about how he came to see the need for a God of wrath, the need for a God of justice. He writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? But my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalised beyond imagination and I could not imagine God not being angry. And he says, how did God react to the carnage? By, by doting on the perpetrators, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming their basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would actually have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. And so he concludes, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. 
And so God must respond to the evil of the people. And his destruction is that response. But we might still argue that death is a bit much. I mean, why couldn't they just be judged and the people left to remain? That leads to the the third thing, the danger of spiritual infiltration. As I said, the devil's plans are either to exterminate or infiltrate. To infiltrate would mean to, to mix with the people and to corrupt them from within, to lure them into spiritual compromise and idolatry. This is what God warned his people about repeatedly. Deuteronomy 20, you shall devote them to complete destruction that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices. So you sin against the Lord your God. So God's people have this role to play, to to be pure and to to be holy so that the the Saviour will come into the world. So they must retain their uniqueness. They cannot allow... uh, They cannot allow this compromise. Ralph Davis likens it to a kind of spiritual cancer. When you have this kind of thing within the community, you have to destroy it. Otherwise, it will destroy you. And finally, fourthly, we need to say that God is actually responding to the people in their ongoing defiance. You see, actually, God had shown them great patience. We hear about their evil all the way back in Genesis 15, and it's maybe 700 years before they're finally judged the way that they are. And through all of that time, they have defied God repeatedly, resisted him throughout all of that time, despite his warnings and despite even his mercy that he shows toward them. And this is really the tragedy of the book of Joshua. See, there actually were provisions made for those who submitted to God. We see it with Rahab. She was brought in to the people of God. She'd heard of God's greatness, and so she humbled herself before him. We saw it last week with the Gibeonites as well. They were great warriors, but they didn't want to fight. They chose not to fight. They humbled themselves and made a treaty with the Israelites. And as we discussed, it was a messy process in all of that, but we did see that God embraced them and protected them. And so this option was there for all these nations, but they spurned it. As Francis Schaeffer says, if if God so dealt with Rahab and the Gibeonites when they believed, what would have happened if others had believed? See, all through the book of Joshua, we're seeing God's greatness and his glory displayed, and everyone in the land has seen it. We know that they were actually afraid of this God. We're told that they melted, their hearts melted, as they heard about God's greatness. And yet we see these two responses. We see Rahab and the Gibeonites humble themselves, but we see all of these other nations choose defiance. They were well aware of God's glory. They'd seen the River Jordan split in two. They knew that God had torn down the walls of Jericho. They'd seen the sun stand still at Gibeon. They'd seen all of God's glory, and still they resisted. They chose to be uh, enemies. They resisted in what God had done. And as the writer David Firth concludes, those who were judged placed themselves under Yahweh's judgment. 
by resisting his purposes. They responded not with humility, but defiance. Warren Wearsby says, never think of the Canaanites as helpless, ignorant people who knew nothing about the true God. They were willfully sinning against the flood of light. And ultimately, this is why they were judged. You see, they, their sin actually hardened them to the point of no return. God has shown great patience, offering them a chance to repent and to turn back, but they persisted in their disobedience throughout this. They hardened their hearts again and again, refusing to listen. And so we read in chapter 11, verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, there's a lot in verse 20 that is confusing to us. How is it that they can be judged for having hard hearts, and yet we're also told that God hardened their heart. How does that work? How is that fair? Well, I think the best way to think about it is to say that the hardening of their hearts was God's judgment. See, that's what happens when we resist God, when we close off our hearts to him, he actually gives us what we want. He lets our hearts go hard. Perhaps you've seen this in your own life. Maybe there's something that you've done that was wrong and at first your conscience really troubled you about it. You knew it was wrong, but you pressed that down and away. You allowed your conscience to go cold. You resisted it. So your heart began to go hard. God is giving you what you want. He's letting you sin without feeling it. He's allowing your heart to get hard. And we actually see this throughout the Old Testament. We see it with Pharaoh, for instance, that he resists God repeatedly. He hardens his heart. But then we're also told that the Lord hardened his heart too. The two things work together. We see it here in this passage as well. We see it in the book of Romans. People claim to be wise and worship false gods and so we're told that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. They didn't see it fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind, he says. And this is the actually the worst kind of punishment that we can have from God when he just gives us up to what we're asking for, when he gives us the very thing that we want which is separation from him. And this is the warning for us as well. Hebrews 3, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't keep going on in a certain sin because you get harder and harder. God will leave you in it. And so as we read these chapters, I think we need to grapple with the fearsome reality of God's judgment. We don't like talking about God's judgment. We would never want to. But we need to. 
See, we're far too lax, we're far too blasé about sin and judgment. The world around us would say that God just forgives. That's just his job. That's, that's what he does. We assume that everyone is kind of bound for heaven. You go to a funeral and people will say, oh, he's, he's looking down from upstairs. Might not have had any sort of relationship with God, but the assumption is that everyone goes to heaven unless you're totally dodgy. We have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. And so we diminish the sin in our own lives. Our sins are mistakes. Our lies are white lies. We're not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And God can't expect too much, can he? But actually he does. God is perfect. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6. As one writer puts it, his holiness totally saturates his being. And he can't be around sin. Psalm 5, evil may not dwell with you. He hates sin. And so he will judge it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And we have to grapple with that. And see, I actually think that when we study passages like this, something happens within us where we almost seek to undermine God. We read these things and we, we say, God is harsh, God is unjust. And I think what we're doing is we're actually trying to take a moral high ground with God. We say, I wouldn't do that. He's too much. I would be more forgiving. And really what we're trying to do is we're trying to undermine his authority and kind of recuse him so he can't judge us. He has no right to judge because he's not fair. So we're trying to create a scenario where we can escape his judgment. But we can't. And in reality, the judgment that we see in Joshua is just a foretaste of what is to come. You see, Jesus, you know Jesus, meek and mild, hippie Jesus. He actually elevated the sense of God's judgment. He spoke of God judging sin in hell, which he describes as a blazing furnace. He, he speaks about eternal punishment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What words? I mean, here is the God who destroyed his enemies in Joshua. Here is that God saying, this same God, saying that he will destroy anyone who continues to resist him. Anyone who would set themselves up in opposition to God, Jesus is saying, God will destroy. That's what we have to grapple with. But then we also are invited to see the incredible mercy of this God. See, God is just. He must judge sin, but he doesn't enjoy doing this. Isaiah 28, judgment is his strange deed, his alien work. Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's his desire. 
turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? This is God calling out to us. I don't want to judge. Turn back, repent, confess your sins to him, say sorry, and then receive his forgiveness, a forgiveness that is made possible by Jesus. So this is the beauty of what Jesus does. See, God is just, he must judge sin, but he's so loving that he pours out that judgment upon himself, upon Jesus. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So there is justice. Those who oppose God are destroyed. But if you put your trust in Jesus, it's him who is destroyed, not you not us. And if you're still struggling with the justice of all of this, might I suggest as we finish that we think of Jesus himself. So we find it hard to see the death of people. Did that person deserve that? Well, just look at Jesus. He was someone who was holy and perfectly innocent. He didn't deserve this, but because he carried our sin, he was punished. So look at the heart of God. Yes, he is just and he does judge sin, but yes, he is also loving. And so he takes that judgment for us and then turn to him. 2 Peter 3, God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he invites us home to him. I love that song, Rock of Ages. You know, there's this sense of this storm of God's judgment, but we have the Rock of Ages cleft for me, for us, a hiding place, a secure place, where if we put our trust in Jesus, we don't have to fear. He was destroyed so that we would not be. And because he did this perfectly, he rose from destruction. He rose again to give us life. And we can be sure of hope in him. So turn to him. And then let's invite other people to turn to him. It's not enjoyable for us to deal with the realities of sin, to talk about judgment and hell. Sometimes it's important because this is the reality facing all people. But there is also the beautiful hope of salvation in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, this is a heavy topic, a difficult thing for us to talk about, but really, really important for us to talk about. Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners that we have fallen short of your glory and your holiness. So we deserve judgment. And we see in this passage how serious your judgment can be, that those who oppose you are destroyed. We don't want to be destroyed. So we turn to you 
in humility. We say sorry. We ask for forgiveness. And we put our trust in Jesus. Thank you that he is the rock cleft for us, that in him there is hope. Help us to hold on to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.